Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 223 with Dr. Annie McKee. Andy knows what makes for happiness at work and how that makes a difference in terms of your performance. So you're going to learn one, best practices for more happiness at work. Two, how following your shoulds can actually undermine happiness. And three, key clues to help discern when something's wrong at work. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items that we've referenced here, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep223. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you take a look around, see some of our cool stuff. One thing I think is pretty cool is the Gold Nugget email list. So this provides summary insights from each guest in an email you can read in under two minutes that appears in your inbox each morning. And a new guest goes live. So if you wish you could take notes, but you can't because you're running or driving, you're just not able to while listening, we take those notes for you, send them to you. You can sign up at awesomeatyourjob.com or by texting NUG. That's N-U-G to 444-999. If you text N-U-G to three fours and three nines, you sign up that way directly from your smartphone, but not while driving. Safety first. Now here is Annie's story. Dr. Annie McKee is a senior fellow at the University of Pennsylvania where she teaches and is the director of the Penn CLO Executive Doctoral Program. She's the best-selling co-author of three successful books published by Harvard Business Review Press, Primal Leadership with Daniel Goleman and Richard Boyatzis. Resonant Leadership with Richard Boyatzis and Becoming a Resonant Leader with Richard Boyatzis and Francis Johnston. And is the author of Management, a Focus on Leaders. She advises leaders around the world and is a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review. Now, here's Annie. Annie, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. I'm really happy to be here. Now, as we're chatting, I'm looking at your Skype image, which is of an elephant. And I understand you had a recent excursion to Africa. What's the story there? Oh, it was such a good time. We were there in August. And a little background, my husband is from Zambia, which is in Southern Africa. So we were visiting family. We were, you know, in Lusaka in the capital. We went to the village where our family members live very, very simply. No electricity, no running water, that sort of thing. And then, of course, we went up north and went out into the uh, game reserve, which is, I swear, it's the size of Rhode Island. It's huge. And the animals are just so beautiful. It's my favorite place in the world. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Very cool. Well, I also want to hear about sort of your interior journeys. Oh, boy, that was an awkward segue, but we're running with it in terms of when it comes to your writing and your areas of interest. So, you know, you've written all sorts of things with Harvard Business Review and collaborating with folks like Daniel Goleman, a lot of great stuff. So tell us, you know, what caused you to say How to Be Happy at Work is a book that needs to exist in the world? It's such a good question. I've spent most of the last 20 years or so working with leaders and organizations around the world, including in Africa, by the way, and here and Europe and, and you name it. And most of the time I was working on issues of leadership development, culture, that, that kind of thing. And recently I realized that no matter where I was, no matter whether we were in Southern Africa or France or Germany or the U.S. or Thailand, people were telling us the same things. They were telling us, hey, 
my leader's okay, my manager's all right, or maybe he's not. The culture's okay, or maybe it's not. But what I know for sure, they would say to us, is that I need to be happy at work. I need to feel fulfilled. And if I am, I am more effective. So I really started digging into that and did a bunch of research myself and you know read everything I could and found that there really is a case for happiness in the workplace. Now you say a case for it. I mean, I guess I'm already convinced that it'd be nice to be happy at work. So what do you mean by the case? Well, I could go at that a couple of ways, Pete. Uh, number one, I, I firmly believe that we deserve to be happy. And in the kind of jobs we have today, the kind of professions we have, flatter, leaner organizations and all of that, a lot of us work all the time. We work at least a third of our waking lives as adults. And so why would we condemn ourselves to misery for that much of our lives. I, I don't get it. I think it's flat out wrong and happiness is a human right. And if we're not happy at work, we're not gonna be happy anywhere else. And it leaks, it leaks into our families, our mm -hmm. communities. So that's that's one. There's also a business case. And uh, Sean Aker has done some wonderful work linking happiness with individual success. And his research shows that in fact, when we are happier, we are more successful individually and collectively as well. Absolutely. Yes. And so, and that's in his book, The Happy Disadvantage, which is a real page turner. I loved it. And you've discovered some additional pieces when it comes to the cause. Is that true? Or what are some of the most compelling pieces that make that link story come to life for you? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things, Pete. Um, the research that I did dug down into what it means to be happy at work. Do we just feel good all the time? Well, that's not it really. Mm. Uh, is it about just experiencing pleasure all the time? No, that's not what people were telling us either. What I found was that when people said, I want to be happy at work, and if I am, I know I'm more effective, what they meant was they needed to feel a sense of fulfillment and purpose. They needed to feel that their values were alive and well in the workplace and they could act on them, that they could have impact, that the future looked bright, and that their relationships were friendly and frankly great. All right. Yeah. Sounds like a good sort of lineup there. So then I guess I'm curious. So if that's what happy looks like and the ideals we're shooting for, you know, what are some of the holdups or the myths or the things that, you know, make that often not the case for people? Yeah, it's more often than not, frankly, that people are at least disengaged and in my experience, even actively unhappy in the workplace. And we can attribute that to a whole lot of things organizational pressures, uh, the pressures of the, the age we're living in, and we bring that to work, bad managers, all sorts of things. But Gallup's been reporting for years that 60-some percent of us are either actively disengaged or neutral in the workplace, and that's just not good enough. So if we kind of peel that back and say, well, is it just because of the conditions of work? And my answer to that is no, it's not just our working conditions. It's not just the pressure and the stress, although they, they can contribute to it for sure. Um, what it also, what unhappiness also is associated with is our own myths and beliefs about the meaning of work. In, in particular, Pete, I think we've bought into this age old belief that work is supposed to be horrible. It's supposed to be cool, <laughs> right? We're not supposed to be happy at work. That's for the rest of our lives. And you know, for all the reasons I said just a few minutes ago, we're, we work all the time. You know, we walk around with our work in our pocket. We've got to find a, a path to happiness. And it starts with letting go of that, that myth. Work does not have to be gruesome or grueling. It can be fun. It can be fulfilling. And we can make it happen. 
that's interesting. And I don't know where, what I heard this from, but it said, well, that's why it's called work or something. Just sort of like kind of, you know, open and shut, matter of fact, take on that. And so I think I'm already sort of sold on that. But in case there's someone who's not, if they'd say, you know what, work needs to be, you know, gruesome and or grueling in order to make you tough and strong and sharp and growing, you know, you have to have sort of the, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger mentality and work needs to have these kinds of tough challenges to be worth anything. What's your response to, you know, that kind of collection of ideas and ethos around work? Boy, I've heard them all. I've heard every single one of them. And I may, I may have even said those things to myself a time or two in my life long, long ago. Here, here's the thing, however, how we feel impacts how we think, um, how we feel impacts our brain functioning. And the combination of those two helps to determine the actions we take. So what this means is our feelings uh, touch our, our cognition, our thinking, our ability to take in information, our ability to make decisions, and all together add it all up. Our feelings and our thoughts drive action. So if we want to be successful in the workplace, we've got to pay attention to emotion, our own emotion, as well as the other of the emotions of the people around us. We really need to pay attention to this if we want to be successful. And all that macho talk you just mm-hmm. sort of rattled off a couple minutes ago, that, hey, work is supposed to be tough and this will this will make a man or a woman out of you. Just, you know be quiet and be glad you've got a job. Uh, All of that stuff really drives us to the point of being resentful and cynical and unhappy in the workplace. And that's when our brains don't work. Okay, fair enough. So that worldview or belief set, you know, can lead down a path towards cynicism and resentment, which just shuts down all kinds of important functions of our brain in terms of creativity and making a real value-adding stuff happen, you know, with your mind at work. So, well, then I'd love to zoom in in terms of the real-life, practical, daily realities that professionals experience every day. You know, what are some key things folks can do to boost their happiness at work? Right. I talked a minute ago about the myth that work has to be grueling, and we need to let go of that myth, number one. And then we need to stop pointing outward and wait for waiting for somebody else to make us happy. Uh, our boss might make our workplace a better a better experience. Um, we may have a couple of great leaders around us and a couple of great colleagues, but those things will not make us happy. Happiness comes from the inside. And one of the things that I've noticed is that we often get in our own way. We get trapped by mindsets, beliefs, and even approaches to our work that really don't help us. Um, I call them happiness traps, actually. Um, For example, overwork. We work too much, many of us. And it is impossible to be happy over the long term if we are constantly working and not taking care of our physical health, our relational well-being and our emotional and mental health. It's impossible. So we got to get rid of this myth that, you know, you have to work all the time and really put some boundaries up around us or the should happiness trap. This is a this is an interesting one. A lot of people choose jobs and careers because they think they should rather than because they really are called to join a profession or do a certain job. And once you get stuck like that, it's really hard to get out. Oh boy, there's so much good stuff there. I want to really 
rip into a bit here. So first about the shoulds, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, Tony Robbins was my hero when I was a teenager. Fun fact. I was a weird teenager, but uh, I remember one of my favorite things he'd said was that you can should all over yourself. And my mom would always bring me over when he was on QVC to yes. say, oh, he's about to say your favorite thing. <laughs> so, but I mean, point well taken in terms of shoulds, you know, can leave you in a real mess of a place if you're kind of heeding them. And so could you give us some examples of what are some of the top shoulds that folks are heeding that they, you know, ought not to, or things that sort of exert an undue influence in folks' work role decision-making? Yeah, I will talk about a few of those, Pete. Um, one of the things that I see in organizations all over the world is that people often feel that they have to dress act and be a certain way. And that definition of what you're supposed to look like and act like is often very, very narrow. And stepping outside of that, those boundaries is seen to be some kind of a sin in organization. You know, I was working with an organization once, and if somebody showed up to that to uh, to that organization with scuffed shoes for an interview, they would not get the job. Mm. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Does scuffed shoes have anything at all to do whether somebody can actually manage and lead? No, they don't. It, it makes no difference whatsoever. So it's kind of an extreme example, but there have been studies done that uh, show that most of us cover a great deal of who we are in the workplace because we think we have to. We think we should show up a certain way with the game face on. And the psychological distress that is caused when we deny who we are, when we try to hide our personality, um, even hide our our gender, our race, or other aspects of ourselves, which is impossible, of course, Um, it's really, really tough on people. And over time, it can cause a lot of distress and even anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's interesting. So you're talking about shoulds right there in the course of the day-to-day experience of life. And I guess I was first thinking about shoulds in terms of accepting the job in the first place, you know, like what you said with regard to calling. And so do you have some answers or shoulds that happen in that realm as well? I do. I absolutely do. These shoulds operate us on a lot of different levels. And by the way, they're not all bad, right? You're not going to show up to work in a bathing suit unless you work in a pool, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So they're not all bad. But um, I was talking with a friend just last week, and she happens to teach in a university. And she was telling me that she'd been talking to some of her seniors just recently. And these seniors had already decided to take certain jobs at the end of this year when they graduate, you know, in May. Um, they had interned at wherever it was over the summer, and they were going to take these jobs that are now being offered. And to a person, they, as she told me, these young people were taking jobs they knew already that they did not like. Wow. And, yeah, right? That's so scary because they thought they should take the job at the consulting firm or the firm with a big name or whatever. Um, they wanted to please their parents. They wanted that investment of college to be worth it, whatever the reason was for them. And, um, you know, they would say things to my friend like, well, I'll just do it for a couple of years and then I'll do something different. But honestly, Pete, I've met those fat, those same people fast forward a couple of decades and they're in their 40s and they're still stuck mm-hmm. because they set themselves on a path and 
decided not to pay attention to what called them to work, what really made them feel passionate about what they do, and instead took a job. And, you know, that translates into a whole lot of other traps. You get in the job, then maybe you've got a slightly more expensive apartment, and then a few years down the line, right, you've got the whole shebang. Well, you know, that really brings me back because I did work in management consulting. I was a Bain & Company and I remember we had these offery weekend, don't call it sell weekend, although that's what we called it informally. It Because in terms of, hey, everybody who got an offer, we're going to try to show them how amazing it is to work for Bain. And so I remember someone really opened up late at night in a cab after some beverages and how she had had offers from Bain as well as McKinsey and Company. So two, you know, great firms, great names, prestige, opportunities, doors open, all that stuff. And I remember she said, oh, I feel like I'm choosing between McKinsey and all of its name, brand, prestigious, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and happiness with Bain. And I was just like, well, first of all, you know, whatever prestige rankings you're looking at puts them pretty darn close to each other. So it doesn't even make sense to me. Right. But I think, yes, it was, you know, her parents and other forces that be put it in her head that McKinsey and company is like sort of the ultimate in elite and prestige. <laughs> and exactly. even though that she did not want to be there. And so she ended up choosing that firm. It blew my mind. Yeah, no, I've seen it time and again. And I see people who are further along in their careers do the same same thing. They take that promotion when, in fact, they are actually really happy doing what they're doing right now. Um, they pursue a, a particular area of expertise when they're not interested in it because they think it'll get them ahead and that they think they should do it. And mind you, I'm not knocking getting ahead or knocking making more money or promotions or anything. I think that's all really important. It's the reasons why we do it that we have to pay attention to. So if we're trying to get a promotion just for the sake of getting a promotion because we think we should, or if we're following a career path because we think we should, we will ultimately be unfulfilled at at the very least and most likely pretty darn unhappy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So well said. And now I want to dig more into what you had to say about the overwork. And so I love your strong position there. It's like, it is impossible over the long term to experience happiness, you know, with a lot of overwork happening, you know, month after month or year after year. And so tell me what defines overwork? Is there a number of hours or is there a certain threshold or how do we say, "Mm, this is clearly in the unsustainable, unhappy zone when it comes to overwork? You know, I've never seen a study that tells us exactly how many hours is too many hours to work. Um, But from my own experience and my own work with executives, I can tell you that if we find ourselves working during the workday as we do, and then in the evenings, and then early morning before we go into the office, and then on Saturdays, and then we skip that vacation, we're, we're in the zone, we're in the overworks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it happens for a lot of reasons. Our organizations, are, many of them are flat and lean. We've got, we are working more than we have ever before in many countries around the world. And we're, we're asked to do more with less. It's a cliche, but it's true. So that pressure is very real. There's another one, and Arianna Huffington said it really well. She said, we've got a snake in civilization's Garden of Eden. <laughs> and what she meant by that were the digital devices that we literally carry 
carry around with us. We've got our work in our pockets or on our bedside table. And it's so easy to just sort of look away from your loved one in the evening or your child who's trying to tell you a story about school and kind of glance down to see if somebody's emailed you or somebody's texting you about a project. It's really easy to get sucked into that trap. And honestly, Pete, I've done it myself. And guess what? It's even easier if you love what you do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, right. So the point is not how many hours, but are we finding a way to live holistically? And, and you know, I, I don't use that word uh, balance, work-life balance. I think that's a myth because that sort of brings to mind a kind of a pie chart that you can cut a certain way and everything's going to be fine. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't think that that is realistic or even possible, but we can understand ourselves well enough to know what's important to us what we care about and make sure we reserve time and energy to do those things too. Okay. Excellent. And so, and I'd love to get your take. So we talked about some of the shoulds impacting, you know, whether or not you take on a role or, and then some of the things you should bear in mind, you know, right here, right now in your current role, what might be some telltale signs that, you know, happiness is going to be, ever elusive in your current role and, and you may be well advised to look elsewhere because, you know, in some ways I think that maybe part of it's the macho thing, but I think there's something to be said for persistence and sticking it out and going through a challenging time, you know, here or there, and then adapting and revising yourself and your approaches so that things can work for you. But, but sometimes things are beyond repair. So how do you sort of discern, you know, where you are and if it's time to go? That's a great question, Pete. I agree with you that running away shouldn't be necessarily your first option if you're feeling dissatisfied or unhappy in the workplace. Your first choice really is to take a good hard look at what are you doing to yourself that may be contributing to that and can you change something about yourself and the way you're working or approaching work that will make things better. Persistence is great and trying hard is great. We do learn through challenges and struggles sometimes, of course, and we look back on it and say, I'm glad that happened to me. Um, but if, if you're noticing a few things about yourself sort of persistently over time that are making you really uneasy, for example, you know you used to be a glass half full kind of person. You were an optimist. You always looked for the bright side. And anymore, all you want to do is hang out with the naysayers and join the chorus. Um, you've become a true pessimist and you just can't see any good in the world anymore. And you know that's not you. Okay, that's a really good indication that something's gone wrong with you. Number two, um, relationships. You maybe in the past, you've been pretty good. You've been a good manager. You use your emotional intelligence. You know, you guide people, you inspire people. And now you're short tempered and you're pointing fingers and really not a very nice person to be around. Wow. That's an indication that something's gone wrong, too. And, and by the way, when that happens at work, it's usually already happened at home. So you want to look at early on when you start becoming short-tempered or irritable and not really having any patience for anybody at home and becoming that bear when you walk through the door, when I ask yourself, what's going on? Is, is there something wrong? Or is this just, I've gone too far down the path of discontent and unhappiness at work and it's starting to play out at home. So those are two really good signs. And then honestly, physical health. Um, a lot of us, when we are unhappy, 
uh, don't take very good care of ourselves. We stop doing things we love, like exercising. We either gain a lot of weight or lose a lot of weight. Either one is not very good for us. Maybe have that second or third cocktail at night instead of staying with the one or two that's kind of okay, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you want to really look at, at what's going on physically as well. It's often a sign that something's wrong. All right. Excellent. Well, Annie, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Pete, I would just like to say that happiness truly is a human right. And there's a lot we can do to make ourselves happier in the workplace. Happiness is something that we can all find. And no, we're never going to be happy every minute of every day. That's not the goal. The goal is to feel a deep and abiding sense of purpose in our work, to feel that our future is tied to what we're doing right now. And a very personally compelling vision of the future is close to our hearts. And that we're friends with at least a few people at work. And we feel like we can hang out with them and really enjoy them. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? My favorite quote, oldie but goodie, be the change you want to see in the world, Gandhi. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I think I'd have to say two things. I think Sean Aker's work on happiness and success is excellent, number one. And I think the tens of thousands of studies that have been done on on relationships in the workplace and emotional intelligence. So they're happening all over the world. And I think that's really adding to our understanding of what it means to be a good leader and create a resonant microculture around us. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Favorite book, Daphne du Maurier, Rebecca. All right. Thank you. Well, tell us a little more. I love to read fiction. I read nonfiction too every day of my life because I love to learn. Uh, and every single day of my life, I read fiction. Um, I read so many of them that I often forget the titles, which is terrible because I'm an author myself. But, uh, you know, it just happens to be a really beautiful story by a really talented author from a long time ago. All right. And how about a favorite tool? Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are you hammering these days? Oh, anything I can get my hands on. I like building things. Oh, that's great. We're doing home renovations right now. So (laughs) it is exciting and it is challenging and it is, I've retreated to an echoey room, which hopefully isn't showing up on the audio. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Uh, And how about a favorite habit? Deep breathing, uh, mindfulness. Okay. And we say mindfulness. What are some of the mindfulness practices? For me, it's really simple. It's uh, deep breathing and trying to uh, calm down, trying to empty my mind. Um, Personally, I like to be out in nature and it really helps me keep stress at bay. All right. And is there a particular nugget that you share that seems to really connect and resonate with folks? They retweet it, they Kindle book highlight it, they come up to you and say, I was so blown away when you said this. Yeah, people seem to respond really well. When they ask me, what can I do today to be happier at work? I tell them, go make a friend. Just go find a buddy and build that friendship. So you've got somebody that you care about and who returns the favor and see if you can't spend more time together in the workplace. Perfect. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? AnnieMcKee.com. And you'll see all my social media there and a lot of free articles to read and, you know, various things that I've been publishing, some things that others and my friends are writing that are really great. So there are a lot of resources there for all of our listeners. 
Oh, great. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I have two. Be curious about people and then be kind. All right. Well, Andy, thank you so much for taking this time here and sharing this wisdom and expertise. I think it's so important and so appreciated. So thank you and good luck in doing all you're doing. Thank you, Pete. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. I thought it was so powerful how Annie shared that she saw again and again and again the shoulds at work. People think I should take this promotion because it's more money. It's a bigger opportunity. There'll be more prestige. I'll be cooler or more of a big deal. And that's just what you do, right? You go after promotions. Progress is good. Growth is the thing we're after, right? Instead of really thinking about what's going to lead to additional happiness. And if that should is actually potentially counterproductive, where'd that should come from? Is it valid? So helpful and also reassuring that Annie is around so many brilliantly smart people that she sees make this mistake again and again. If you've made it, well, hey, you're in good company. You're amongst many brilliant folks who have. And the quicker you can do a wise course correction to what's really going to get the job done with regard to happiness and emotional well-being, the better. So I hope that's handy. If you want to review any of the particular pieces in terms of the full transcript and notes or links to stuff, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep223. Now, I also hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It's Julian Treasure. He had one of the most watched TED Talks ever about how to speak so that people want to listen. So he shares some of those gems with us. I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 